Hey everyone, and welcome to Theana Money, where we seek to help the good man leave an inheritance to his children's children. This is Jeremy, the host of Theana Money. This is the first episode of 2024. It is the first U.S. presidential election year since the fiasco of 2020. And while I am not a prophet, nor the son of a prophet, though the man who originally said that was actually a prophet of God, I expect this year to bring some interesting developments, ones that will unfortunately probably make for some good Theana Money episodes. I say unfortunately because those developments will likely be ones I would rather not have happen, no matter how many downloads the episode talking about them received. But enough about that. This week we are doing an episode that... I should have done near the beginning of Theana Money. My first several episodes of the podcast were on private property, as that is vital and lays the groundwork for basically everything else in economics. But money is vital as well in economics. Not quite as basic as property in my opinion, because without money, you can still have a barter system. But without private property, you cannot have either money or a barter system but still quite basic in the topic of economics and something I should have addressed a while ago in Theana Money. But hey, the second best time to plant a tree is right now. So in this episode, we will talk about what money is and why it is important. And I will be pulling some from Gary North's book, Honest Money. And I'll put a link in the description of this episode to where you can download that book as a free PDF. Before I jump into that, just a few housekeeping items. If you like this podcast, whether Theana Money as a whole or this episode in particular, though I hope the answer is both, please share it with a friend. Also, since we just concluded 2023, I want to take a moment to recommend several books that my wife and I have read in the last year that I think are worth reading. For nonfiction, I want to recommend Jason Farley's In Pursuit of Kindness, In Pursuit of Kindness, Edith Schaefer's The Hidden Art of Homemaking, and Andy Wilson's Notes from the Tilt to World. We read some fiction as well, one of them being a new book by Christopher Polini called Murtag. We enjoyed it, but don't read it unless you have already read the first four before it and Polini's Inheritance Cycle. One more nonfiction. My wife and I are currently reading Jonathan Edwards' Religious Affections together. We aren't done yet, but so far it has been good. I wanted to add a little cut in here. First, there was another book my wife and I read together this past year that more than any other one relates to the topic of Theana money, and I forgot to recommend it. So I'm adding Ruler of Kings by Dr. Joe Boot. Second, when I recorded this episode, like a week before it drops, I had only at that point read like half of notes from the Toto world 
I'd read enough of it to really enjoy it so far and knew I would finish it before the episode dropped, so I went ahead and recommended it. Plus, I've listened to every or almost every episode of Stories Are Soul Food, so I kind of knew the type of stuff that Andy Wilson would say, and uh, I thought it'd be fine. I didn't think it was wrong of me to say it's a book I've read, because by the time the episode drops, I will have finished it. And uh, uh, so I went ahead and said that. And uh, since I recorded the episode now, still several days out from it dropping, I have finished a story, or I have finished, not stories or self food, I have finished Notes from the Tilted World. And uh, that means I also read N.D. Wilson's chapter on hell, which I want to take a quick moment to comment on. Overall, Notes is a phenomenal book that I think will really change your outlook on viewing the world and your life for the better. And after reading notes, read Andy Wilson's uh, Death by Living, which I just started yesterday. So I'm only on like the second chapter right now because I started it like shortly before I went to bed yesterday, but it's really good. But while Nate said some good things in the chapter on hell, especially near the end of the chapter, he takes a view of hell that is popular in American Christianity, as far as people actually believe in hell in American Christianity, unfortunately possibly because of the influence of C.S. Lewis. But I think uh, it's wrong. It is not, not heretical or even close, but I do disagree with it. Nate rightly talks about hell as real and eternal, but he talks about it as a place where the atheist gets what he wants, absence from God. Though he doesn't directly state this, This is the idea I had as a kid that God restricts his omnipresence from hell. I thought that if God was in hell, he would be in torment too, and that can't happen, so God must just restrict his omnipresence from hell. As I grew older, I changed my view on that. I believe God's omnipresence is not restricted from hell, but that God is very much there, pouring out his wrath on those currently in hell and later in eternity in the lake of fire. God is present in hell, pouring out judgment on the occupants. This next thought might be agonizing, but total depravity is so strong, especially after the restraining mercy God gives to sinners in this life so that humans are not as evil as we could be, is removed, that if you took a burning soul and plucked it out of the lake of fire after a million years there, though what is time in eternity, and told that soul He could never have to go back and could go spend the rest of eternity in peace if only he would bow his knee to God in obedience and faith. That soul would rather go back to the lake of fire. There is no second chance for the people in hell. Death comes and then comes judgment. But even if there were, no one would do it because their hatred for God is stronger than their hatred of the torment of the lake of fire. This last part I covered is part that Nate probably agrees with, though we disagree on the former aspects. That being said, I still appreciate the book very much. I just disagree with some stuff Andy Wilson had to say about how. He believes it is real and even wrote a chapter about it in his first nonfiction book, a book that Thomas Nelson was willing to publish. So good on both him and Thomas Nelson for that. Maybe some of you listening disagree with me and agree with Nate. Maybe some of you listened to Paul Washer, and so you already believed 
everything I just said. Because I believe Paul Washer said the same. I think that last part I said about the uh, plucking the burning salt of hell and they would rather go back than, than obey God. I think that actually came straight from something Paul Washer had said. As long as you believe in eternal conscious torment, you are orthodox on hell. And we can discuss and debate the details as fellow believers. And if you are an annihilationist, or if you prefer this term, conditionalist, we can discuss that too. In college, I was assigned to defend that view in a debate on hell and actually won the debate. But I hated every moment of it because what I was saying was so bad. And I had to read Clark Pinnock's poor attempt to defend this idea in preparation for the debate. Let all of this be motivation for you to evangelize more. Fulfilling the Great Commission, which includes both evangelism and discipleship, is the primary way that postmillennialism becomes reality. And as Ray Cufford has said, and probably was not the first to say, this life is the only hell that believers will ever know, and the only heaven that unbelievers will ever know. So with that anything but cheery note out of the way, let's get back to the topic of today's episode. Let's start with some definitions of money. The Federal Reserve of St. Louis defined money this way. To summarize, money has taken many forms throughout the ages, but money consistently has three functions, store of value, unit of account, and medium of exchange. Gary North has said that to be money, something should have these five characteristics. Typically, Anything that has functioned as money for any length of time has had all five to some degree or another, and having all five, in good measure, can set up something to function as money for a while to come, should some tragedy not strike. Those five things are, one, divisibility, two, portability, three, durability, four, recognizability, and five, scarcity, which North defines as, high value in relation to volume and weight. Let's take a few minutes to explain what each of those mean. First is divisibility. If something is not easily divisible, it is more difficult to function as money. Imagine if the smallest bill was the $100 bill. There were no 50s, 20s, 10s, 5s, singles, or the $2 bill for however many of those are still around. No coins either. This would make transactions much more difficult because you would have to buy $100 worth of something to make any purchase at all. And if you wanted more than $100 worth, it would have to be $200 or $300 worth. No $150 worth because that would require a $50 bill and a $100 bill, and $50 bills don't exist in this world. If this were really the case, either bartering would start happening for smaller items, or the free market would devise some new thing that would function as smaller units of money. I assume that both would happen to some degree, but the latter would be more likely and happen more frequently. So for something to function well as money, it needs to be divisible so that smaller transactions can take place, or to make the exact change on those larger transactions. Second, money has to have some degree of portability. Imagine if a dollar weighed a pound. 
and every coin smaller or bill larger weighed an equal amount to that relative to its weight. A quarter weighed four ounces since four ounces make a pound. And a $10 bill weighed 10 pounds because that is 10 times one pound. That wouldn't be a big deal if you're going to Dollar Tree and just grabbing a few things. But what if you're going to the grocery store to get food for your family of six for the next two weeks? Two or three hundred dollars means two or three hundred pounds. Try carrying that around your local grocery store. Sam's Club and Costco would go out of business because no one could carry enough weight for all of the money they would need in a single trip there. The near weightlessness of cash, or a debit or credit card or even a phone app now with digital payment methods, makes money much more portable. Compare this to a primitive economy where something like cows function to some degree as currency. That is even less portable than the each dollar weighs a pound scenario, not to mention other issues like the divisibility of a cow, which can only be done by killing and butchering it. Third is durability. Ideally, for something to function as money, you want it to last a while. If I am saving up money for some big purchase, it would not do if what I collected at the beginning deteriorated before I had enough for the entire purchase. Since money is a store of value, as the St. Louis Fed definition mentioned, and as I will go deeper on shortly, I would like my store of value to, well, store for some length of time. If my money is not durable and wears away, then I have to do more work to replace the money I lost, not to my own negligence or to an investment that went south, but rather to the ravages of time. Rather than doing that same work to acquire more money. That would be the ideal. I don't have to do extra work just to replace money that wore away and corrupted and rotted, but rather doing more work to get more money for other expenses. Fourthly, money should have some recognizability. The more time and effort that goes into making sure that something being used as money is genuine and legitimate, not counterfeit, the worse everyone else is. Time is wasted on the part of both the seller and the buyer, and the seller might decide to offset that extra time, which means wasted employee hours and thus higher costs, by passing those higher costs onto the consumer in the form of higher prices for the good or service. As Gary North says, people would rather deal with a more familiar money. It's cheaper, faster, and safer. Lastly is scarcity. High value in relation to volume and weight. The rules of supply and demand apply to whatever item you are using as money as well. If there is a lot of it going around, that means that there is a lot more of it out there than just what is in your pocket. So the price of a particular good and service goes up because its value stays the same while the amount of dollars in circulation rises. This is how we get inflation. The pool of American dollars in circulation rises, and so it takes more of them to acquire a particular good and or service than it did before because the value of those dollars relative to the good or service has gone down. Part of scarcity as North said, is high value in relation to volume and weight. If something is to be used as a store of value, as money, 
then it needs to take not very much of it to equal a decent bit of value. Otherwise, it takes too much of it to purchase anything, and we run into the issue with portability, where the money is no longer convenient to move in order to transfer ownership or carry some on you just in case. This is the case when cash bills lose so much scarcity that it takes a whole wheelbarrow full of them to buy a loaf of bread, like in Germany in the 1920s or the United States in the 2030s. Well, hopefully not, but we'll see. Gold and silver fit all of these quite nicely, and that is why they have functioned as money since the days when the book of Genesis was still the present. Gold and silver can be made into small coins, which covers both divisibility and portability. If they are pure, as they should be to be used for coins, they have a high degree of durability. People have figured out how to make fake stuff that looks like real gold and silver, or to plate gold and silver onto coins where the middle is a cheaper material, but generally gold and silver have a decent degree of recognizability. And though you may think there is a lot of gold, of gold and silver out there, and there is, it is not so much to ruin the scarcity component of those as a form of money, especially when you think about how much is taken out of circulation to form wedding rings and other types of jewelry, or expensive watches and other fancy things. Gold and silver are definitely more scarce than dollar bills, which can be run 24-7 on the printer. Or who even needs a printer with digital currency? Some clicks on a keyboard can make money way faster than any printer of uh, Federal Reserve notes. And now you have no paper and ink expenses, so it's even cheaper to do it this way. Now that we have looked at what money is, let's take some time to look at why we need it which is perhaps an even more important question than what money is. There are many things out there that you know what they are, but good reasons for why they are is what is lacking, like certain aspects of the American government. Going back to the St. Louis Fed definition, it mentioned that a consistent function of money is a store of value and medium of exchange. At the end of the day, that is both what money is and why it is important. The characteristics of money that Gary North described are needed for something to function as both a store of value and medium of exchange. Those five characteristics from North serve these two basic functions. To explain why having something that is a store of value and medium of exchange is important, many people go to Daniel Defoe's novel Robinson Crusoe. I do not mind using it to explain, no matter how often it is done by various people, for two reasons. One, it works, and two, I have liked that novel since I first read it somewhere around a decade ago. Gary North, too, uses Robinson Crusoe to explain money in his Honest Money book. If you are not familiar with Robinson Crusoe, then know that it is about a man who is deserted on an island by a shipwreck. He is alone because he is the only survivor, and with nothing more than what he can salvage from the shipwreck and find on the island, he survives for many years on that island. One of the items he salvaged from the ship was a Bible, and reading it while on the island leads to his conversion. It really is a good novel, and I highly recommend it if you have never read it. For Crusoe, there was no need of money. 
There was no one there to buy and sell with, so trade of any sort, whether buying and selling with money or bartering, was not only not necessary, but impossible, since there was no one else to trade with. Crusoe simply used what he salvaged from the ship and what he found on the island in order to survive. The monetary value of one thing versus another was not important to him. What was important was whether with his skills and abilities, the item in question could help him survive. If there were two items, one with an economic value of a year's wage back home, the other with an economic value of next to nothing, but the latter item helped him survive better, Crusoe would have preferred that one. In this world, money has no purpose because there is no buying and selling. Now imagine that if instead of being the lone survivor, Crusoe had a companion survive with him. And imagine that both men were skilled, hardworking, and neither one had to pick up the extra work of the other's laziness. At the beginning, they may both work together completely in a desperate attempt to merely survive. But once they have a secure position on the island, then property belonging to one versus the other becomes more important, and eventually they even begin to trade with one another. They may stick to merely a barter economy, or they may eventually use something as money, perhaps gold coins they still have left from the shipwreck, or something on the island that fits the five character characteristics of money Gary North gave well enough to suffice. Now we are getting closer to a normal economy and a purpose for money. Before continuing, let's review the five characteristics of money from North once again to help us remember. They are 1. Divisibility 2. Portability 3. Durability 4. Recognizability and 5. Scarcity, which North describes as high value in relation to volume and weight. Think of an agrarian society. You need some axes, so you go to the town blacksmith. Pretend for a moment that money doesn't exist in this fictional town, and all business is done by bartering. You try to offer him eggs for the two axes you want, but he has a dozen chickens of his own, and his family would not eat all the eggs he would want in exchange for two axes before they went bad, especially since he gets some of his own from his chickens every day. You offer him produce from your farm, but he already has enough of the produce you have on hand. There is another fruit or vegetable he does want, and would be willing to trade you an axe or two for that fruit or vegetable, but since you do not have any, you have to leave the smith's forge or storefront, and go find someone willing to trade you the produce you have for the produce the smith wants, and meanwhile you are hoping someone with that produce does not trade with the smith before you return. Maybe instead of that, the blacksmith wants a cow so his family can have fresh milk without having to trade for it, and eventually his family will get some meat as well. You have several milking cows and are willing to part with one, but you do not think that two axes are worth enough to part with one of your cows. The smith agrees and throws in some other items, and you finally agree on a deal. Then you have to go back to your farm and bring your cow all the way to where the smith is, then take what he trades you in exchange for the cow back home. This is time-consuming, and the high value of the cow meant that you, had, you and the smith had to figure out other things you want, and he is willing to give up to make both parties agree to the transaction. 
But wouldn't things be easier if there were some way for you to provide your good or service to person A and person B gives you what you need without having to have some in-between product that person A has and person B wants? That would make everything much easier. Well, imagine if this village had gold and silver coins with which to trade. That would answer our dilemma. The coins do not mean that you can no longer barter goods and or services for each other. They just mean that one side can bring coins instead of goods into the transaction. And this makes things easier all around and also allows for more trade to happen. Unlike the town smith, the town tanner does not have any chickens. And so you sell him a dozen eggs every week for a couple coins. He says that he'd like to have some milk too. So when you deliver the eggs, you bring a jar of milk in exchange for another coin and his return of the empty jar you sold him milk in last time. In this example, you are still free to barter. For example, at harvest time, you can trade so many pounds of corn to the tanner in exchange for some of his leather. Rather than being uh, done as two transactions for coins, but you have that option. Remember the example a moment ago with the other farmer that you were going to barter crops with? Well, you can still do that, or one of you can sell your crop to the other, or a combination of both. By a combination, I mean something like, you give him 20 pounds of this crop and 10 pounds of another, and in exchange he gives you some coins and 10 pounds of a third crop you didn't grow, but he did. You both got the produce you want in exchange for the produce you had more of than your family would eat, and you got some money too. Now if you go to the smith needing some axes, you might negotiate a barter with him for them. Or you may both rather that you just buy the axes for some coins. The coins represent the value that they can go and purchase. Rather than have a good right now, like say food that has to be eaten before it goes bad, the smith now has money that he can save for the future, like buying food from farmers in the village later after his family has eaten everything he harvested from his small backyard garden. So money is a store of value, the value of the labor someone puts in to provide a good or service another person is willing to pay for. And it is also potential, as in potential good or services you can purchase with it at some point in the future. You, as the one holding the money, are storing a good or service you did for someone in the past in order to exchange that good or service with someone else in the future. That way you do not have to negotiate a good or service from both parties at the time of transaction, but one, in essence, gives the other goods and services he provided to others in the form of money, the money they paid him for those things. I know that was a kind of complicated way to explain it, so to say it another way, you did something for someone and he paid you for it. So that money represents your labor. You bring that labor to someone else in the form of the money you were paid in exchange for some of his labor. This is how money is a store of your labor because it is a store of the value of goods and services you have provided and will exchange with others for goods and services they will provide for you. I like the way Walter Williams explained this in a video I watched from him several years ago. You go to the butcher shop and tell the butcher that you want $20 worth of steak. 
The butcher asks how you have served your fellow man in order to earn that $20 worth of steak. You tell him that you mowed your fellow man's lawn and he paid you $20 for it. And now you give that $20 bill to the butcher in exchange for the steak. The bill was a transfer of value. Your neighbor wanted his lawn mowed more than he wanted that $20 bill. And the butcher that wanted that $20 bill more than he wanted the steak. You didn't have to negotiate mowing the butcher's lawn in exchange for the steak. Instead, you mowed your neighbor's lawn and had that cash on hand to pay for whatever you wanted with it, whenever you wanted. In this case, $20 worth of steak, which you might have purchased the same day you mowed the lawn, or you might have purchased six months later. That six months later part can be really important if, say, it is winter when you buy the steaks, when the butcher definitely would not have given you the steak in exchange for mowing his grass. Maybe for shoveling his driveway, but not for mowing the grass hidden below several inches, or maybe feet, of snow. So what is money? Money is a store of value and medium of exchange. Many things can function as money, and many have throughout the centuries. But for something to work well as both a store of value and a medium of exchange, it should have these five characteristics to at least some degree. 1. Divisibility, 2. Portability, 3. Durability, 4. Recognizability, and 5. Scarcity, which Gary North describes as high value in relation to volume and weight. Instead of bartering your goods and or services with someone else in exchange for his, you can barter goods and or services you provided to someone else because that person gave you money in exchange for your work, and now you give this other person money in exchange for his work. It makes trade more possible, as well as more convenient, and that makes everyone in a society better off. That was this week's episode of Theana Money. As we go, I want to remind everyone that the law of the Lord is perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, and true. So go apply that law, in light of the gospel of Christ's atoning death and resurrection, to every area of life. Grace and peace, friends. Satisfies me Your law is sweet Oh, you say